Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Faith and Family. In today's episode, we're airing part one of a live talk that I gave at a Catholic men's conference entitled, The Heart of Fatherhood. You know, in giving talks on fatherhood, I discovered a special lever in bringing tough-to-reach young fathers back to the faith. I found that men with absolutely no interest in practicing their faith or attending other Catholic events still have a strong desire to be good dads. In a Catholic fatherhood conference, I try to demonstrate the need for their connection with God's fatherhood in order to be a successful father. I try to be direct and challenging. One result, we've seen men who haven't been to confession in 10 or more years go home in a state of grace. God's plan for family renewal, cultural renewal, is Malachi 4.6, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. I'm going to be talking about fatherhood and the heart of fatherhood this talk. And i like to just start with how incredibly important fathers are. I remember one of the first Catholic men's conferences I did. It was in Colorado. And I was going through a whole litany of things of what happens to kids who don't have a father present. And the psychological problems, the drug problems, the academic problems, the incarceration problems, and everything else. And when I got done with my talk, I found out there was a child psychologist standing in the back of the room. And he said to me, Steve, while we were talking, I went through my whole client list and realized there wasn't a father in any single home of the kids that I'm dealing with. Uh, fathers are important. Uh, I wrote a rather provocative article for my newsletter, <coughs> Why the New Evangelization May Flop. Um, I don't know if you're aware, but evangelization, Protestants spent a lot of time on this stuff, that the key to really changing a culture is evangelizing it and to get groups not just individuals, but groups. And you look for the key movers to move that group. Well, the Southern Baptists did an extensive study, and here's what they found out. That if a child is the first one in a family to convert to Christianity, and just think about your parish budget or whatever, what is spent on children's evangelism versus father's evangelism, like these guys are doing. If a child is the first in the family to convert to Christianity, there's a 3.7% probability that the whole family will follow. Okay? If mom is the first one in the family to convert to Christianity, there's a 17% probability that the whole family will follow. If dad is the first in the family to convert to Christianity, there's a 93% probability that the whole family follows. So, see, if you really want to change the fabric of this country, and I do believe in political activism and being involved, but that's not going to change the, the fabric of our political system until we change our culture. And culture comes from cult, not a Mooney cult kind of thing, but from the religious faith. And if you want to change the religious faith of America, it's fathers. 
This one is actually quoted quite a bit, but there's a little statistic that uh, I save for men's conferences, I try to. Um, it's in my book, Legacy, and it's from a Swiss study. And for whatever reason, the Europeans were interested in the answer to this question. What causes the religious practice to convey to the next generation? In other words, what causes kids to at least go to church? It doesn't say how much they're practicing. They found, and this is a Swiss study, and I have, um, it's actually misquoted all the time in the media, but I have the full footnote. It's a horrendous URL, but in any case, I have the full footnote in there. Um, if mom alone is practicing the faith, there's a 2% probability that the next generation will be regular churchgoers. One in 50. Two. If mom and dad practice the faith, it goes from 2% to 33%. Now you ready? If the dad practices the faith, father only, and mom doesn't, there's a 44% probability that the next generation will be churchgoers. So the answer to this is, have your wife stay home and skip Mass tomorrow morning and watch the pregame show. <laughs> you figured out that was a joke. I said that while we were taping a show on EWTN and they just freaked out. I had to say three times, that was a joke, that was a joke. But... You know, what the organizers of this conference are doing, they put a lot of work in here, but they're doing the smart thing. Because if the Southern Baptist survey is right, if the Swiss survey is right, there's not a thousand men here today. No, there's a thousand families here today. You see that? You're a key player. And that's why Dad just can't put passing on the Catholic faith on his wife's shoulders. Um, I didn't realize it until my, I was at my dad's funeral, but his favorite hymn was Faith of Our Fathers. And you know, there's a whole lot of truth behind that. And for whatever reason, I mean, our wives are certainly prettier than we are, they're smarter than we are, they're more gracious than we are generally, but God has, in his plan, dads play a key role in passing on the faith. And I'm going to share with you an incredible way that as a father, you can pass on the faith. And it's kind of a secret. Some of your sons are here, so just plug their ears right now. Um, <clears throat> God has designed every child, everyone who comes into this world to be an imitator. This is pre-wiring by God to imitate what they see. And the very basis of Christian discipleship, listen to St. Paul, 1 Corinthians 4.15. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus. I urge you then, be imitators of me. In other words... What would you do if you lived in the most crazed pagan city in the Roman Empire? I'm talking about 
You think we have it bad? Um, yeah, I attended the University of Florida for a couple of years and lived in a part of town called Sin City. And I thought that was a wild place until I joined the Navy and went to a foreign port. I, I'd just never seen anything like it. It was absolutely berserk. Corinth was the Navy town of the Roman Empire. The temple, which was about a thousand feet overlooking the city, had hundreds of prostitutes because that was the religion of Corinth. It's kind of like San Francisco and uh, Mardi Gras and everything just crammed together. That's Corinth. That's who Paul was talking about. So how do you get people who are immersed in a culture that's just thoroughly pagan? It's by the power of imitation. Paul was saying, I'm discipling you as a father and simply be imitators of me. Here's another one. Same, same letter, 1 Corinthians 11. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. You know, this hit me uh, one day. We used to have, when my kids were little, the Wood Shine Club. Uh, when I was a teenager... Um, started going a little wacky pretty early, and my parents thought it would be a good idea to send me off to military school. Uh, that was counterproductive. But nonetheless, one of the things I learned at military school was to spit shine shoes the old-fashioned way. And that's not, you know, you get your kiwi polish and put a little water in the cap. No, you get your kiwi polish and you spit on your shoes and then you shine them up. So if I had my... Shoe shine club. My kids would come in and bring their shoes, and they want a shoe shine too. And one day I left the room and I came back in, and one of my daughters said, "Well, look, if Dad is spit shining, I'm going to lick shine." I didn't have to tell them to, to imitate. Now it was a little too far, really. We we stopped that. Um, you know, they just naturally were imitating. Dad, I remember one of my kids, I forgot whatever it was, I think I had a splinter in her foot or whatever, and I tried to get the foot, I had a bucket of warm water in the tub, and, you know, tried to stick her foot in, and she started about ready to cry and scream and everything else. And I just thought about this, imitation. I said, ah, back off a second, I put my foot in. She put her foot in. I have eight kids. All my kids try to get their feet in that bucket. It's the power of imitation, Dad. And now they'll deny it, but in the long run, this is how it works. And you are like you're like a motion picture in front of your kids every waking moment. It's like CNN, ABC, CBS, and ABC filming all at the same time. And they're taking things in from you. And God has made them, for better or worse, to imitate you. And particularly, your practice of the faith. What you value, what you think is important, and such. Now, if this is true, you need to do two things related to the power of imitation. One, you're going to have to maximize your time with your kids. Because for the power of imitation to work, you've got to be with them. There's a man here that just spoke to me. It was at one of my conferences, I don't know, X number of years ago. Just starting out in his fatherhood. He said, Steve, he said something that has become the basis of my fatherhood. And that's, I'm so happy to hear that. 
Love for a child is spelled T-I-M-E. Time. And when you've got, particularly when your children are young, I know the experience, you get married and think, oh, this is going to be wonderful. And then you have kids and you don't realize they come with all this gear. And then you need a bigger house and a bigger car and insurance and doctors built. And then you figure out, you know, this is really going to be expensive. And so you start hustling in your career. At the same time, your kids are at the maximum time demand for you to be with them. And it's, it's a tricky balancing act, but you've got to work to be with your kids. You've got to prioritize it. You don't just kind of let it happen. Now, I have a smartphone and all the gizmos and computer stuff and everything, but I still use a paper planner for my day. And one of the reasons is I put at the top of my daily planner this verse from Psalm chapter 90. It says this, Teach us to number our days so that we might get a heart of wisdom. Now, you don't need to pray that prayer if you're in your 90s and have great-grandchildren. Okay? Um, because you basically you've invested your time in something. And, you know, I was a pastor here in southwest Florida. And I never met someone near the end of their life who were going, <laughs> if I just had spent some more hours at the office. Never. Usually they start talking about their children and their grandchildren and their family. Because when you get to the end, you've got wisdom. You know what's important. The trick is, and it's not a trick, it's a purpose, is to pray early in life. When you're a young dad, Lord, teach us to number our days. We're not here forever, that we might get a heart of wisdom. And no matter how you... Because guys want to put their dent in the world, and it's a good thing. I believe God puts us something in men's hearts to make a dent in the world. But if you want to make a dent in the world, a lasting dent, do it with your kids. Make them a priority along with your, your job and profession because your kids will be continuing your dent after you're gone. You see how it works, guys? So, power of imitation. God has pre-wired. And by the way, your greatest obstacle will be, you know, like teen years and stuff when all the media and peer group become temptations for imitation. If you're smart, you know, God's given you more than a decade head start on the teenage peer group. If you're simply with your kids, spending adequate amount of time, the power of imitation, you know, you'll have put a foundation in your, your son, your daughter's lives. Okay? So you maximize the time. And then on the other side of the coin, you want to minimize the negative influences. And we got a few today, don't we? Uh, a lot. In fact, the problems that were in ancient Corinth come through this box, was well, no longer a box, this flat screen in all of our homes. And here's what I would recommend. That's what I did. Made my kids complain and howl uh, because we used the thing called ClearPlay. Has anybody heard of ClearPlay? Just one guy. Ay, ay, ay. We need a lot more clear play around here. All right. Clear play 
is a digital filtering service. They have over 4,500 movies, enough to watch from now till the second coming. Okay, There's a whole range of movies. And what it does is that you can set your filters so that, say, you don't want your 10-year-olds to see sex scenes that may just pop up in the middle of an otherwise halfway decent movie. And if you notice, stuff does kind of pop up that seems really out of the box according to the theme. Okay, well, you can... What ClearPlay will do, because with digital stuff, this is very easy, just... That's popped out. And it'll just skip forward a second or two, and it's gone. Same thing. You don't like your kids to learn four-letter words or hear them all the time? You can set up a filter for profanity, and it's just out. One word, word takes less than a second, and it's, and it's filtered out. You can get these filters three ways. You can stream movies with clear play using Google Play, and if you have a little technical configuration, you can also do it with Apple Play. Uh, you can also get just a USB disc that you stick into your video player that'll have a built-in filter for it. And uh, what's the other way? Well, it, it has an upgrading DVD player, too. So you have old DVDs. It'll play those at a higher digital rate. Clearplay.com. Um, you're supposed to guard your home. Okay? You're supposed to guard your home. And this is one way without becoming ultra-negative, you can guard your home. Now, somebody's going to tell me uh, right afterwards, Steve, why don't you just say, take the shotgun and blow the darn thing up? Um, I'll tell you why. It's the same reason that people who are radical teetotalers who just rage against alcohol have children with some of the highest rates of alcoholism in the United States. The reason is that teetotaler has made the whole focus alcohol. And it's come in a reverse way. So you want to be kind of moderate about this. And clear play. Yeah, my kids complained a little bit. But I just said, you know, you would be watching this movie otherwise. Okay, okay, okay. We can, we can do without a few seconds and maintain a semblance of purity. Let's move on just a little bit to teens and young adults. And I dare say, if this isn't coming, it's here. Uh, my youngest son is a uh, student at Clemson University, and have you heard? they have a football team. <clears throat> but in any case, he's involved in an apologetics group a bunch of students have set up. And very interesting, what they did, rather than feed the other students, um, whatever they were interested in and, and, and such, they passed out three-by-five cards at the beginning of semester and asked the new students what questions they had about the faith or an apologetics topic. And I'm just sharing with you, at really high on the list is what we call cultural apologetics. It's not arguing for the existence of God or the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. They're doing that type of thing. But there's a real interest in things like, how do we explain to our 
friends that the practice of homosexuality or same-sex marriage is wrong. How do we get that across? So that's very high on the list. And if you come across good stuff for that, that's the kind of thing you want to equip your, your kids with. In fact, back to that camp, Pat Madrid's camp, I came and gave the very best apologetics talk I have. It's called John 6 out there. Um, second most famous Bible verse in the thing. And I had five Protestant, um, they were pre-ministers working with a priest all summer. And they hammered this priest trying to get him out of seminary. He was painting houses with him all summer. And this priest um, transcribed that talk on John 6. And all five of these guys converted in an hour. <laughs> I had put this CD out of production. I thought, ooh, better get that one back. Okay, so I gave that talk to these kids, and they're very politely listened. I said, any questions? Hands went all over the place. And it was on same-sex marriage. And how do we explain that and how the practice of homosexuality is wrong to our friends? Every hand went down. They weren't interested in my best talk. They were interested in cultural apologetics. Now, <laughs> I dare say, at least with young people, I think a big boo-boo is being made. A very big one. Because books are rolling off the Catholic press showing natural law arguments why it's wrong. Now, there's nothing wrong with natural law arguments except if you don't believe in nature. If you don't believe there's a design throughout creation or even a designer if everything is random collection of molecules that happen to come together, natural law arguments will be like Teflon right off their backs. In fact, I heard a fellow EWTN radio host, I just can't understand why people just don't get these natural law arguments. You've got to go back to the fundamentals. And that's why the intelligent design movement, because I'm telling you what's coming and what's here, okay, you have to, things are moving fast in our culture. And so how do you counter it all the books coming off the Catholic press are for natural law arguments. And really what the young people need is something more fundamental than natural law arguments. And that's just the fact that God has, has a design for everything he has made. I'll tell you who I think is the top gun on this is a young uh, scholar by the name of Stephen Meyer. And he's, he's done information in the cell. It's so complex it'll exceed any and almost every computer uh, in existence. And he shows how he, the single human cell is so incredibly com complex and loaded with information. And information doesn't come from non-information. And he uses logic and science to show that there's a design through our bodies, through the world. That's the kind of thing you're going to have to convey to your kids so that you can have natural law arguments and argue for the wider cultural apologetic issues. This is what's here. This is what's coming. And our kids are being hit hard. And this is what they're interested in. So, you know, I'm just telling you my experience. We move to another topic. I'm going to move through a few things here because a few things are very important for fatherhood. And right at the top is marriage. For men, very often, marriage and fatherhood is a package deal. If the marriage breaks, dissolves, very often a man is separated from his children, 
and very often after 10 years may not even be seeing his children regularly and I need just to interject I'm not putting down any guys here who have suffered the pain of divorce that's not my job to add to the pain you know the pain's there and you know that if somebody maybe got to you a little sooner a little better maybe it would have prevented that and you would want to see others get that help I've been to conferences where they asked me not to talk about this but I, I've talked to divorced guys and I said no Steve go for it so I'm going to go for it it's this simple I mean this is real simple but every or practically every marriage I don't know there's probably two people here maybe this never happened but uh, everybody else we have what are called ups and downs in our marriage okay there's days there's seasons sometimes long seasons and you know what in the first decade of marriage it's statistically it's actually seven years but I'll just be generous and say the first decade you'll have say the husband is really positive about the marriage things are going well at work his team's winning you know things are going nicely at home you know everything's kind of it's good right now maybe the wife you know is just getting over the birth of first child going through the blues and all this kind of stuff that marriage is fine husband's up wife's down they'll get through it and they'll come back together you lose your job financial stress to the max that'll keep a man up at night your wife's over her blue she's doing well home's nice and trusting God has all her friends praying for her husband to get a new job she's convinced God will provide so she's up he's down that marriage will survive but what happens this is what happens sometimes during that first decade statistically it's at seven years but sometime during that first decade both are down at the same time my psychological description description of that very profound double dip okay that's it the double dip and when you hit the double dip somebody comes along and says you know you really want to stay married for life and you think you got to be kidding this is hell on earth I can't see another 20 30 years of this I'm out of here okay now here's the statistics and it's interesting it seems statistically I'm not recommending this but statistically those who go for marriage counseling to a good marriage counselor you've been listening to part one of the heart of the father a live conference talk by Steve Wood thanks for listening to faith and family visit us at dads.org to get a copy of Steve's book legacy a father's handbook for raising godly children Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org.